It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each year, the Aspen Institute holds its annual Aspen Ideas Festival. Hundreds of inspired and provocative speakers and thousands of participants descend on the Institute's 40-acre campus, tucked near towering mountain peaks in Aspen, Colorado. We want you to be part of the festival, so we're featuring fascinating conversations with festival speakers throughout the event. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show produced by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The Aspen Ideas Festival is jam-packed with on-stage discussions touching on topics such as climate change, U.S. and world politics, psychology, technology, and health. For our series, we've asked a group of journalists to step off the stage and get behind the mic. These podcast takeover hosts handpicked festival speakers for discussions on a myriad of topics. Our first takeover host is Julie Robner. She covers healthcare reform on Capitol Hill for Kaiser Health News. She also spent more than a decade reporting for NPR as the organization's health policy correspondent. She's presenting at Spotlight Health, the opening segment of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Here's Robner. I'm joined now by Lonnie Chen. He's research fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of domestic policy studies at Stanford University, among other things. He's one of the leading conservative voices in healthcare today and has advised many Republican campaigns on healthcare, including Mitt Romney's presidential run in 2012. Welcome, Lonnie. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Julie. So I hear that you were involved in the development of the Senate Republican health care bill. Is, is this a true rumor? <laughs> well, I, you know, I provided some insights and thoughts to, to folks who were working on it. And um, you know, they were kind enough to ask for my input. So I gave them some of my thoughts. But it's clearly been a, in many ways, a seven-year process. Uh, thinking about what a replacement for the Affordable Care Act would look like. So now that we're in the thick of the debate, it's actually quite exciting. What do you think has been the most unexpected stumbling block? I mean, everybody assumed that, well, you know, Republicans have been saying they're going to repeal and replace it for seven years. Why on earth didn't they have a bill ready to go on day one? Well, I I think it's less about not having a bill ready and more about not recognizing how much nuance there is in the conservative movement amongst Republicans about health care policy. You study this, you understand this, but if you look at the Medicaid expansion, you already see where there are differences developing. You know, John Kasich and Greg Abbott are in very different places. You know, you see members of Congress Congress like Ted Cruz and Rob Portman that are in very different places. So there's so much nuance in terms of how Republicans think about healthcare. I think people tend to see it as a monolithic block. That's not how it is at all. And so now that we're actually getting into the substance of this policy debate, we're seeing how nuanced and challenging that can be. Well, one of the things that actually, this, this wasn't mine, it was Dean Clancy wrote a piece some yeah. years ago in, in U.S. News that I still think about every day, which is that Republicans are kind of divided between the, you know, the corporate Republicans, if you will, and the, the free market Republicans. And, the you know, the corporate Republicans have w- want to, I think, change things less and just, you know, do things to encourage business. And the free market Republicans say, I mean, those are the ones who yell that, you know, we're, we're bailing out the insurers. So, you know, how do you how do you bridge that divide between, you know, everybody, everybody recognizes this is what you were saying, that the Democrats are sort of divided but between the incrementalists and the single payer people. But the Republicans also have that big divide. Well, Julie, you know, it's interesting. It's even more difficult now because we've got even more groups within the conservative movement that the president really in many ways has 
uh, inspired or led a new group of uh, more populist-oriented conservatives. And it's unclear really how much of their orthodoxy is traditionally conservative. So this is actually a very complicated matter. Um, I, I think getting to an answer, getting to bringing everyone together, really has to come back to this basic point about how many moments in history does one get to look at a piece of very complicated public policy that's been around for seven years. People forget this is a, a, an entrenched piece of public policy. How many opportunities will there really be to look at this and, and engage in a substantial change to that legislation? We've actually never seen it in American history. We had the Medicare catastrophic discussion, but, but that was uh, sort of turned around within the course of a year. year this and has a been half, seven years. Yeah, yeah, a year and a half. <laughs> yes, so, and, I mean, and just to remind listeners, that was a, a bill that passed. I actually covered that yeah. uh, in 1989 and was, uh, and, or no, passed in 1988, and it was repealed at the end of 1989 yeah. um, because the, the financing got out in front of the benefits. Yeah, and, and, and there were those famous. Um, uh, situations where members of Congress were being accosted in their home districts, a, a really uh, famous situation where uh, Dan Rostenkowski got assaulted, uh, leaving a town hall in his district. I mean, that's part of the dynamic at play here now as we see. I mean, there, there's some current rationale behind why the process has unfolded the way it has, because there is a lot of sensitivity to how these reforms are going to be received once uh, folks get out there and start talking about them. So what what is the, I mean, people are, obviously, the, the this Senate bill that, that got unveiled did did not get a very happy reception from an awful lot of people. What is the crux, do you think, of what the Senate bill does that's different from what the House Pass bill did? Uh, I, I think that there is an effort, uh, first of all, to increase the assistance given to lower income Americans to target it a little bit better so that you're able to get a little bit more pickup of uh, private sector coverage, maybe even exchange coverage, depending on, on how this goes going forward, uh, amongst people in that lower income population. And potentially some of those folks could churn in and out of Medicaid, by the way. So there is a rationale to targeting assistance there. I think the second thing is it does take the Medicaid changes in the House uh, and, and in some ways softens them, in other ways firms them up, I guess would be the best way to think about it. So there are some changes to the financing of, of Medicaid. Uh, it does sort of graduate the phase out uh, of coverage for the expansion population, but it also in many ways imposes uh, a, a stricter fiscal baseline going forward for states. So um, a little bit of a mixed bag when it comes to Medicaid. I, I think the most promising part of the Senate legislation that the House bill didn't do is the state flexibility piece, which is encapsulated in something called Section 1332 of the Affordable Care Act, which was originally kind of seen as an escape hatch from the ACA, where states would have an opportunity to be innovative so long as they met certain requirements. Really what the Senate bill tries to do is to give states that flexibility, but really open it up in terms of what states can do, including repealing a lot of the regulatory challenges uh, that many states and, and many consumers believe have raised, raised costs. So um, that's kind of it in a nutshell, but I really think that state innovation piece is the one to pay attention to. The Democrats had trouble with the Affordable Care Act because, of course, they needed every single Democrat in the Senate to get it passed. They had 60 at the time, and they needed all 60, and the, it got kind of contorted to yeah. get to that 60. The Republicans only need 50, but they only have 52, so they also have uh, you know, a, a difficult job. Do you worry that 
anything that ultimately becomes law will have that same kind of political contortion that the the Affordable Care Act had because of the deals that may have to be cut to get the right number of votes? I think every piece of large public policy has some of these contortions in it. If you look back over history, you know, when we had the debate over the prescription drug benefit being added to Medicare in 2003 and how the vote was held open on the House floor for, I think, over two hours, in part, so some of this wrangling could take place. I, I think we've seen this a lot in recent history. So it's entirely possible that we're going to have to see some deals get cut in order to get this through. Um, but broadly speaking, I think Republicans will return to the basic premise that this is a significant opportunity to engage in some entitlement reform, which would be the, the Medicaid reforms, uh, and to turn back some of what they believe are some of the more objectionable parts of the ACA. So I think that ultimately is what's going to drive this discussion as we go into the next next week. If you didn't have to deal with the, the politics of all this, what would your perfect healthcare system look like? <laughs> well, actually, you know, a bunch of us got together and wrote a piece in 2015 that was um, commissioned by the the Peterson Foundation uh, and published by the American Enterprise Institute that sort of looked at some of these questions. I, I think, first of all, we, we start from the premise that the American healthcare system in many ways has gotten complicated because we've grafted different elements that we need onto the system over time. And it really started with the original sin, I'd argue, of this huge tax exclusion where we get most Americans, 160 million or so, get their insurance through employers. Now, the only reason that happens is because in the 1940s, the IRS made a decision that these benefits would not be taxable income to the employee. And as a result, we've had this whole industry grow up around it. Now, we are where we are, but in many ways, it would be best if individuals could own their own health insurance plans and have portability as they went from job to job or life situation to life situation. Like you the, don't change your car insurance when correct, you go from job correct, to job. Correct, yeah. And, 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 and so I think that we need to figure out some way to get back to a system that enhances portability. And in turn, that's going to create a more competitive marketplace to enhance affordability as well. The challenge is it's going to be tough to get there. But that's and, what the ACA tried to do. Well, yeah. And you know what people discovered is they kind of like the insurance they have. They kind of like the arrangements they have. And so in some ways, this ideal discussion is all academic because we're never really going to get to that system if and until people begin to figure out that the ideal system will mean maybe divorcing where they are now from the employer-based market for health insurance. So um, it, it'll, it'll be tough to get there, but but that's kind of the premise I would begin from. Every single economist on, I mean, it's one of the few things that's completely bipartisan says yeah. that, that, that really the, this employer exclusion, the fact that you don't pay taxes, that you, the worker, don't pay taxes on the health insurance that your employer provides you, yeah. in addition to being one of the, the largest single tax breaks in the tax yeah. code, um, distorts the health insurance market. And yet the Democrats' imp uh, uh, effort to at least start to chip at it, the, the Cadillac tax, is broadly unpopular and people assume it will never take effect. And then the Republicans in the House considered doing this for all of about five minutes and yeah. backed off. I mean, is there ever going to be a way to get to that? Because you can't, I think what both sides want, it will be really hard to fix yeah. unless you go after that at some point. Well, you know, the Senate bill actually puts in place not a repeal of the Cadillac tax, but a delay. We'll see if that sticks. It may be the case that 
conservative members are going to fight for a total repeal of the Cadillac tax. That's where they'll get. The Cadillac tax is the one piece of the Affordable Care Act I really think in many ways is workable. It is one of those things where we need to figure out, again, how to equalize the tax treatment of health insurance between people who buy insurance on their own and get it through an employer. The Cadillac tax actually moves us in that direction. You should explain what it is. Well, the, the Cadillac tax essentially is a tax that's assessed on certain high-value health insurance plans. Uh, the idea being that it will force employers in some ways to begin to curb or to cap the level of benefits they provide. Now, the challenge with that is a political one. As you were part of a discussion last night here in Aspen, that was great, where this came up, which is that the policy, everyone left and right, economists, policy people agree, we've got to do something about this. But the politics gets so complicated because you recall one of the promises President Obama made when he campaigned for the ACA was if you like your plan, you can keep it. Well, let me tell you something. If we begin to touch the employer exclusion, you're not going to be able to keep your plan in all likelihood, which is not necessarily a bad thing if you can go to something that works better for you. But most Americans, frankly, look at that and say, look, I don't want that. So politically, the politicians in Washington say, that's toxic. I don't even want to go near it. And that's why we get end up getting stuck with the system largely that we have. Healthcare, when I started covering it, which was a million years ago, was pretty bipartisan. And there are still moments of bipartisanship in healthcare. I mean, we saw MACRA, the, the, the effort to actually, which was to fix a problem in Medicare that was created by another bipartisan yeah. bill in 1997. Yeah. Um, so there are times when Democrats and Republicans can get together on healthcare. Do you see it ever coming back? It's so polarized right now. You have all Republicans doing things or all Democrats doing things. And it just seems impossible to get to any addressing of certain, some of the fundamental underlying problems in our healthcare system. I think in part, we'll have to see what happens with this repeal and replace effort. Uh, I do think that uh, what I fear for healthcare is that we're going to get into the four-year policymaking cycle or eight-year policymaking cycle where we're going to have to relitigate these fundamental issues that 20% of the economy depends on. And I don't think we can afford to do that as a healthcare system for our country, nor frankly, can our economy stand the shock of, of going back and forth uh, every few years. So in some ways, I guess, depending on what happens with this effort over the next few weeks, uh, one could see an alternative universe, if you will, where this bill doesn't pass, the effort essentially gets shelved for a while, and then folks come together to try to figure out, okay, are there ways to move forward? But you're right, right now, there is no pathway to a bipartisan set of agreements on health care because we are in such a polarized discussion around the Affordable Care Act or you know, even the naming of the Affordable Care Act draws some partisan division. So um, I, I do think that it's going to require us to be in a different headspace than we are now because I just don't see it right now. Lonnie Chen, thank you so much. This has been both, both hopeful and depressing, but I guess that's the story of health care reform. Thanks for having me on, Julie. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Festival speakers have taken over the show. Throughout the Aspen Ideas Festival, we've asked visiting journalists to interview guests of their choosing. Check back throughout the week for more interesting discussions. Find Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes, Google Play, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, and NPR One. Scroll through our archive and subscribe on iTunes so that you'll never miss another fascinating conversation from the Institute stage. Now, back to today's takeover.
Hello, I'm Julie Rovner of Kaiser Health News, and I'm your Aspen Ideas to Go podcast takeover host. I'm here with Dr. Willie Parker, who chairs the Board of Physicians for Reproductive Health and has become one of the leading voices for reproductive justice. Dr. Parker has a brand new memoir called Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. He spends much of his time traveling around the South and performing abortions in places where the procedure is not widely available. Dr. Parker, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, what is the state of abortion access today in the U.S., and how fast has it changed? Well, it's uh, the state of abortion access in the U.S. is, in my opinion, dire. Uh, we used to be able to say that there were regionally it was horrible, but increasingly now it's uh, other states are gaining parity. And I say that uh, not as a compliment, but uh, the plight for women accessing abortion is, is worsening all over. Roe has been legal for 44 years, uh, and in the absence of being able to overturn Roe, uh, beginning in 2010 with the sweep of the legislature by the Tea Party, uh, that also reflected a sweep at the local level of having the perfect storm of conservative governors with legislatures that would rubber stamp whatever came through. The governor could sign these rules that have effectively gutted the provisions of Roe. So we have waiting periods. We have states that don't fund abortion care for poor women. We have uh, mandates to provide medical misinformation. Uh, uh, we have targeted regulations that uh, speci make specifications on facilities that have nothing to do with health care. And so all of this has uh, resulted in the uh, denial of women access to the basic health service of abortion. Reproductive justice is kind of a new phrase that a lot of people probably aren't familiar with. What what exactly is reproductive justice? So reproductive justice for me represents uh, a, a new framework of how to analyze and to look at and to strategize about um, dealing with problems that are complex in their makeup. Uh, the core uh, framework of reproductive justice would employ the concept of intersectionality. Audre Lorde says that none of us live one-dimensional lives and we have multiple things that affect our, how we make our decisions and what, how we live. But reproductive justice uh, de declares that all women uh, have a right to uh, have uh, safe pregnancies and to give birth to the children they want and have the resources to parent them. The ability to, they should have the ability to prevent pregnancies that they don't want by having medically accurate sex education and access to uh, evidence-based contraception. And they should also have the right to end pregnancies that they couldn't prevent uh, and uh, with uh, access to safe and legal abortion. Those are the core tenets. And they also uh, uh, take into account the factors that seem to be non-medical that influence reproductive outcomes like housing, education, jobs, community safety. So reproductive justice, as opposed to just a, a rights framework, is one that has a combination of, of a rights, uh, health, and justice framework. I started covering reproductive health issues in Congress in 1987. Mm -hmm. I've been at this for a while. I think I wrote my first story about efforts to defund Planned Parenthood in 1989. Mm -hmm. um, what is it about women's health that makes lawmakers just see red? Um, I think it's less about women's health than it is about the control of women and being indifferent to what that means with regard to women's health. Uh, Planned Parenthood uh, is more of a symbol than the actual ability to stop abortion. Planned Parenthood has become branded for abortion, even though abortions, percentage-wise, a small portion of what they do. They are a critical part of the safety net. 
but in the quest to honor uh, ideologic pledges, where people who are driven to see abortion as an undermining of traditional values, and where uh, people see abortion as an indirect indicator that women are sexual beings and that one of the outcomes of sexuality is pregnancy, whether it's planned or unplanned. So Planned Parenthood represents more of a symbol, and uh, it pays high dividends politically high dividends politically, because if you say I'm conservative and I want your vote uh, and, I'm, and I want a values-based agenda, Planned Parenthood or the defunding of Planned Parenthood or targeting Planned Parenthood becomes an easy way to yield low-hanging fruit around convincing people that you're conservative. So I think it is more that men in their quest for power and their ability to pursue power uh, become indifferent to the health implications uh, that occur when they uh, target Planned Parenthood. I want to talk about values for a minute. Most people associate Christians from the South with opposition to abortion, yet you are a Christian from the South, and you say you perform abortions out of a religious imperative. Can you explain that? Sure. To people who are fundamentally, fundament, who have fundamentalist religion or who only understand sacred texts one way, I can't explain that to them. But if, uh, if one looks at uh, a religious understanding uh, that it can be, it, within a religious tradition, it can be pluralistic. And rather than having orthodoxy, there's heterodoxy. That is to say, within a religious tradition, there are people, as they apply it in a conscientious way, they can arrive at different conclusions and not to the exclusion of anybody else's identity. Uh, the thing that's most moving and most convincing for me about Christianity is uh, its core value of love and compassion. And so whereas uh, fundamentalist Christians uh, have an understanding of, a, of God and with regard to Christianity as a, a vindictive, judgmental, rigid, uh, fierce God, I relate to the God of Christianity in the form of love and compassion and understanding. I also relate to uh, uh, a God that is gender neutral if human beings are an expression of the uh, creativity of God, that we are males and females, men and women, human beings, uh, we stand equal in our agency. So uh, I believe that what is heard is more important than what is said. And so whereas fundamentalist Christians hear judgment and condemnation, when I hear Christianity, I hear love and compassion. And so I think it's not mutually exclusive to be Christian and to be compassionate. And in the context of being compassionate as a women's health provider, when women need abortion care, it is not beyond the compassion uh, of my Christian understanding to provide much-needed health care in the form of abortion. Last night you spoke really eloquently uh, about the idea that finding common ground in the abortion debate might actually be the wrong goal. What should we be seeking instead, given how divisive this issue is? Sure. In my training uh, as a researcher, uh, I had a professor say to me that you can't get the right answer to the wrong question. So I think framing and question has to be has to be precise, so that whatever result you come out with has to be relevant and valid based on the question that you ask. I think in our pursuit of civil discourse, uh, in the pursuit of common ground, you can end up with common ground and civility, but not end up with any movement on critical issues, particularly politically. And I think that's been the reality of uh, the abortion uh, issue as a public issue uh, that we have uh, 
accommodated the narrative that lends itself to good theater, namely the pro-life, pro-choice narrative, which doesn't speak critically to what's at issue. Uh, pro-life and pro-choice are kind of uh, very ambiguous terms, uh, but politically what we're really talking about is pro-reproductive rights and anti-reproductive rights. And the substance of those questions uh, will lead people to declare where they actually stand. Either I am pro-reproductive rights, pro, which includes abortion. That means that women who need abortions can get them. Uh, providers who, uh, who feel uh, compassionate and compelled to provide them can provide them. But a pro-choice uh, stance does not mean that anyone can demand or compel someone to have an abortion. On the other hand, an anti-choice stance means that you're free not to have an abortion. If you're a provider, you're free not to provide them. But anti-choice, people don't stop there. They don't want anybody else to have an abortion. So if the question was framed in context of pro-reproductive rights and anti-reproductive rights, then we can honestly disagree. And then that leads to civility because you won't, we won't have these circular arguments where we're creating theater, where we're coming together and saying, my position is pro-life and yours is pro-choice. But we will then say, I honestly disagree with you. And politically, I'm going to do everything to achieve my, uh, a, a political outcome that agrees with my values. Then we don't have to have a conversation, but we do have to engage politically. And I think we, we can then decrease the mushy middle. We, get, we have data that shows that 60-something percent of people agree with abortion in some form or fashion, and yet we don't get different policies. If that 60 percent of people voted according to what they agree with, then we wouldn't have the laws that we have. I think about the people who protest in front of clinics. If 60 percent of people agree with abortion in some form or fashion, the number of anti-protesters would be larger than the ones who are uh, opposed to abortion. So I think civil discourse... Uh, and common ground are nice and polite goals, but uh, a common ground to me begs what is the what is the common ground? In this question, the common ground happens to be that we are declaring that women's bodies are public property and public space. So then that everybody who doesn't have any say-so in that woman's life is entitled to make, have, weigh in on what that woman should do. I think it's... Uh, Common ground is an easy position to have unless you're the ground that they're standing on. What about the issue of funding, though? I mean, most of these arguments today are, I don't want my tax dollars going to something that I don't believe in. You know, I'm against war, and I don't want my tax dollars to pay for aircraft carriers. But when I put my money in the public coffers, I relinquish my private control over those dollars. Right. Uh, and so as a result of living in community and as a condition of my agreement to be a citizen of this country, I contribute to the I contribute to the Commonwealth and to the common interest. And then I I uh, I weigh my values, how I participate politically. So, um, you know, there are lots of things that I don't want to pay for because they don't reflect my core values. But that is one of the tradeoffs of living in community and, and of citizenship. And so. Uh, if you don't really want to pay for abortions, why don't you pay for contraception and decrease the number of abortions that occur? Well, I'm glad you asked that because it seems a lot of the policymakers who are opposed to abortion are now opposed to contraception, too. And providing, you know, there are arguments that contraception is abortion. Sure. How? And this seems only fairly recently that the contraception debate has come so into the forefront. What is this based on? I think it's, a, it's a, an attempt to... It's uh, one upsmanship around, if you're conservative, how conservative are you? You know, you're against abortion? Well, well, shouldn't you be against premarital sex? 
And doesn't contraception uh, 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 facilitate premarital sex? So what it comes down to me, just as I apply simple logic, if you're against contraception and you're against abortion, the only thing that contraception and abortion have in common is sex. So it means that you really have issues around sexuality. That would mean that what's also a part of the problem is that we don't have we don't have comprehensive uh, affirming sexuality education so that people now have hang-ups uh, around sexuality. And so because of that, we stigmatize and uh, moralize human behavior. So I think uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's unresolved issues around human sexuality that individuals have if they are opposed to contraception and abortion because the only thing the two of them have in common is sex. Don't some people, though, I mean, it's the, have the religious versus scientific conflating of when life begins? I think that's a, a big piece of some of these arguments. Sure. I think uh, it's a failure to recognize that science and religion answer different questions. And I think uh, for a million reasons, I idolize Dr. King, and some people even tease me about being a quote machine from Dr. King. But one of the most compelling and powerful uh, things that I read in his writings related to his reconciling of science and religion because he recognized that there was a tension between fundamentalist religious understanding and uh, a worldview that was based in rational uh, scientific thought. Uh, Dr. King said that science gives mankind knowledge, which is power. Religion gives mankind wisdom, which is control. The two are not enemies. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals with values. And so I'm thinking in a world where we need to be smart enough and good enough that science and religion aren't in competition, they're complementary. So when people say to me uh, in response or to antagonize me because I provide abortions and I claim a Christian identity, when they say to me that abortion is murder uh, because life begins at conception, I say, I understand how you can say that and think that, that is a, but that is a non-scientific understanding of reproduction. And then if we're going to have a conversation about exchange of religious ideas and values, that's one question. You say what you think, I say what I think, and we have to leave it there because I can't rebut your opinion or your beliefs. But if we're going to have a factual conversation about reproduction, we're going to then talk about what it means when conception occurs, and that is that is irrefutable, and it is neutral. It doesn't favor me or you. And so what I'm interested in is an honest discourse of framing conversations around, are we having a religious conversation or are we having a scientific one that can extend itself to policy? Policy has to be made on the basis of evidence and science, not on religious beliefs, because religion is too subjective and too pluralistic for us to make rules that all of us have to live by. So I would say I try and insist on honest disagreement because the Mahatma Gandhi says that's the beginning of progress. And so I need to make sure, are we having a religious, non-evidence conversation, or are we having a scientific, factual conversation towards some end? So the, the other big issue that can, you know, that got involved in both religion and, and public policy has been gay rights. And we've seen a dramatic change just in a very short time, maybe a decade, mm -hmm. that, you know, now, uh, you know, gay marriage is, is legal, it's accepted. Uh, there, there's, you know, there's, there's so much more tolerance um, than there was sure. even a decade ago. Why hasn't that happened with the abortion debate? You know, it's been posed, I've heard that, uh, where people have said that, well, you know, women need to take a page from the LGBTQ community and be open and acknowledge and say, you know, tell that they had abortions. 
And I think uh, when I look more deeply into that, I think that's an oversimplification of what the progress and the destigmatization and, uh, around LGBTQ identity has become. Uh, and I'm, I, I go back to our notion about the problems with sexuality. And let me be more specific. It's not problems with sexuality. It's problems with female sexuality. Because what uh, the LGBTQ advances, most of them have been made in the context of accepting the lives of gay men. Lesbian women still have a different experience around being open about their sexuality. Being lesbian, if you are a political person, still is a is, is a takedown. You know, uh, powerful women have to be lesbian because they're powerful like men, so they can't be authentically women. Uh, but I think that what is what happened in the LGBTQ movement, uh, we were talking about the acceptance of different sexual expressions, primarily for men. We still stigmatize and shame the sexuality of women because women being sexual in a non-procreative way still is a direct affront to patriarchy in the way that empowering men sexually, even when it's same-sex relationships, is not an affront to patriarchy. It's an it's a, it's a affront to masculinity and hyper-masculinity, but not to patriarchy in terms of upsetting the whole order because the power dynamics don't have to shift if men are gay. But if women are empowered and they control their sexuality, then it's, it has a different effect. And for that reason, a woman coming out and rejecting motherhood as her primary identity and not foregoing sexual pleasure as a woman uh, then means that she's not abiding by patriarchy. And so she can, a woman can still be punished for not becoming a mother and punished for being uh, having extramarital sex uh, in ways that is not the same significance for men. So when I tell my patients, it's great if you tell your story. Uh, it allows other women to recognize that they're not alone. It rejects stigma and shame. But there are still even women who have a primary identity of motherhood who punish other women because they refuse to become mothers. So it doesn't have the same prognostic significance if women uh, are out about their abortions that being, uh, ha being open about your sexuality as a gay person is. So it's, it's, it's a subtle difference, but it's a profound one. And it's for that reason that I don't feel inclined to really strongly insist that my patients uh, tell be public about their abortion unless it feels like a form of empowerment to them. They don't owe anybody else that kind of participation. So I guess this, this, this fight will continue. This fight will continue. Dr. Willie Parker, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. I'm Trisha Johnson, host of Aspen Ideas To Go. This week, I've given up the mic and journalists have taken over. They're presenters at the Aspen Ideas Festival, a festival held in the Colorado Rockies each summer. Check back throughout the week for additional interviews between our podcast takeover hosts and their guests. Everyone featured this week is speaking on stage at the festival. Now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Julie Rovner of Kaiser Health News, and I'm your Aspen Ideas To Go podcast takeover host. We're here at the gorgeous Aspen campus this week for Spotlight Health, and I'm pleased to be joined right now by Ai-Jen Poo. She's executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and co-director of the Caring Across Generations campaign. Welcome, Ai-Jen. Thanks, Julie. Um, what brings you to Spotlight Health this year? What's the one single idea you hope participants will learn about what it is that you do? Oh, that caregiving is incredibly valuable and a huge leverage point to a better future, more healthy, better future. And yet caregivers are often not given a second or even a third thought sometimes, whether they're paid or unpaid. It's true. We, it's one of these things that's so essential to life 
right? What's that famous quote from um, Rosalind Carter? There's only four kinds of people in the world, people who are caregivers or will be caregivers, people who need care or will need care. It's such a common thread of the experience of life, and yet we just take it for granted. Um, we call it the work that makes all work possible. What brings you to this specialty? What's, what, what, what got you to where you are now? Two things. Well, I've been, um, I've been advocating for caregivers and domestic workers for about 20 years, and I came to it because uh, it's a profession that's incredibly essential, and I've always recognized that. But when you actually look around, it's not even seen as a profession. And in fact, women who are working really hard doing this work aren't able to make ends meet. And they are mostly women. And they are mostly women, vast majority, over 90% of the workforce, actually. And... Um, and so we have a situation in this country where people who are counting on to take care of us actually can't take care of their own families on the wages that they earn. And so it's a it's it's an unsustainable situation. And in my own family, I experienced it too because um, my grandfather, when he was in his early 90s, he started to need more care than my father could provide at home, and we had to put him in a nursing home. And it was the last thing he wanted. I mean, the one thing he said to us was, don't put me in a home. And he ended up there, and it was horrible. He shared a room with six people. He couldn't eat or sleep. I mean, he was afraid. The lights didn't work. I mean, it was just a terrifying experience for him, and it stays with me to this day that we really need better care options for our growing aging population and I've seen, on the other hand, my grandmother, who's now 92, she has a home care worker who supports her to live at home where she shared an apartment with my grandfather for many years. She's able to go to church, uh, play mahjong with her friends, go grocery shopping, do as much as possible for as long as possible independently. And her quality of life is just, I mean, it's pretty phenomenal for 92. And that's all supported by a home care worker and we need more of that. We need more choices. So I started covering healthcare in 1986, and one of the first big stories I did was on the urgent need for a long for some kind of national long-term care policy. Oh wow! And yeah, talking about well, you know, in 2010, the baby boomers are going to start <laughs> retiring, true. or they're going to start turning 65, and we're really going to need to have something in place by 2010. And of course, it's now 2017, and we have nothing in place. Why is it that we, as a society, can't seem to deal with this entire issue? It's so weird. <laughs> um, but I will say this. It's the baby boom generation that's aging. And if ever there was a generation that could change it all, I think it's this generation. It's the generation that brought us rock and roll and social justice. So if, you know, if ever there was going to be a generation, this is it. And I think that there is an appetite and people are starting to awaken to the urgency of the matter. I wish they had done it when you were calling for it, honestly. I wasn't calling for it. I was just, there were others at the time, including people who were still around, like Ron Wyden. Now the, the Carol Raphael, yeah. yeah. A lot of people who are here at Spotlight Health. Um, but we made a really big breakthrough in Hawaii this year. I'm not sure if you've heard about it. We passed this unprecedented legislation called the Kapuna Caregiver Program, which is a caregiving benefit to support family caregivers to keep their loved ones at home, a benefit of up to $70 per day to pay for respite care or somebody to take your parent to the doctor while you go to work. 
Um, so it's really investing in working family caregivers who are struggling to keep their loved ones at home like my dad was. Um, and it's an investment in the long-term care needs of a growing older population in Hawaii. And we're really excited because I think the governor is going to sign it any day now. And how are they going to pay for that? They've put the startup costs in the general budget. And we're going to, and the basically in the first three years, we're just going to track the data, see how it does, look at the pickup. And I'm certain that we're going to spend out the entire startup costs. And, and then the legislature is going to have to finance it. You know, one of the problems with the baby boom generation is that, that yes, they, they, they went and they marched and they did all kinds of things, but they haven't saved very well for retirement. Um, there's an awful lot of people who are stopping work who don't have a lot of money. As you point out, they're, they're going to need care. They're not going to be able to finance it themselves. This is, you know, this is sort of the, the problem here is how are we going to pay for all of this? And in paying for all this, how are we going to pay the workers that are so needed a living wage? I mean, where does that come from? How do other countries do it? Well, other countries are structured so differently, different tax structures, different and different approaches to care and family care, uh, different social insurance frameworks. So it's hard to compare. Uh, but what I will say is that, um, you know, this question of cost is a funny one. Uh, we waste so much money every single day. I mean, Depending on who you ask somebody, they might say we waste up to a trillion dollars in the healthcare system every year. And a lot of that is concentrated at end-of-life healthcare. And I really do believe that the best prevention is good caregiving. If you imagine really investing in the frontline home care worker who's with the person every single day and whose job it is to uphold that person's dignity... Can you imagine like the unnecessary rehospitalizations we could prevent, the better management of chronic illness and all of the quality of life outcomes, let alone the cost savings in the system long term? So when we think about cost, I don't think we're thinking about it in the right way. Um, and yeah, and I think it's a question of priorities like everything else. I want to talk about the caregivers themselves a little bit. Caregiving is obviously both physically demanding and emotionally demanding, whether you're being paid or whether you're caring for a loved one. What are you working on to, to make it easier for the caregivers to give the care? I'm so glad you asked that question because one of the most important things that I always kick myself for not saying on some of these programs and panels is, you know, I just, we just have to really emphasize how difficult caregiving really is. I mean, it's called unskilled labor, um, and it's often referred to as help, and, you know, you really don't even recognize it as real work in so many ways, but it requires so much capacity and skill to do caregiving. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for raising that. And what we're doing, we're doing everything from really trying to promote training standards, but also innovating on training. The training quality of training is all over the map um, out there, and there's no real standards. And we're trying to develop, take the best and cutting, most cutting edge, most up-to-date research on healthcare and what really works, because we have so much data now, and really get it to the frontline home care worker through training and trying to look at different modalities of getting the training to people, everything from mobile to Facebook Live training to um, to podcasts <laughs> like the one we're listening to now. Um, so we're trying to both democratize 
how we think about preparing the healthcare workforce and also the ways that we're communicating and training people. Talk a little bit about the improvisational work that you're doing. Yes, that's, really so cool. that's one of the things we're most excited about is our partnership with Second City to leverage improv to help caregivers provide better care. And a piece of that, a really big piece of that is caring for the caregivers themselves, right? We do a lot of training that's about how do we help caregivers sustain in this work that's very difficult emotionally and otherwise. And things like improv, bringing in humor, bringing in and embracing the spontaneity and the volatility and unpredictability of life as a caregiver, like embracing that and having a really good sense of humor and saying yes when you want to say no and seeing what that opens up um, is, I think, going to be a really powerful tool for caregivers. We also do things like mindfulness training for caregivers. We work a lot with Sharon Salzberg, who trains our caregivers. So I think it's there's a lot there and if we really invest in caregivers as people as a huge part of the healthcare solution um, and as a part of a team that's going to make sure that our elders have a good quality of life in this country so much as possible and and what about the the caregiving workforce are there going to be enough people who are going to be willing and able to do this to i'm i'm the trailing edge of the baby boom so i have a personal interest in the answer to this question (laughs) I think we all do. I don't know a single person who's not aging. <laughs> That's true. It's better than the alternative. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, I'll say this. Um, one of the things that's really hard is that because the quality of jobs is so poor, even caregivers who really want to do this work often leave it because they can't pay the bills, they can't make ends meet, and they can't take care of their own families. So that's, and many of them don't have health insurance. And many of them got health insurance under the Affordable Care Act through Medicaid expansion and now run the risk of losing it. Um, And many of them are still, even with Medicaid expansion, not able to get access to health care and many other benefits. It's a big problem. And it's it's a bigger problem even than we think, even than a problem about care. Because if we think about the labor force as a whole in this country, A lot of the jobs that used to create economic security for people, particularly lower income or middle income people, no longer exist. And um, there's a real jobs crisis in our future. And and these jobs will exist. These are going to be a large share of the jobs of the future. And we've got to make them good jobs, just like we did Manufacturing jobs in the 20s and 30s were dangerous sweatshop jobs. A lot of immigrant women did these jobs. And we transformed those jobs to good jobs that created real pathways to economic security that one generation did better than the next. We've got to do that for care jobs. We have to. Ajin Poo, thank you very much for joining us. And enjoy the lovely weather here at Aspen this week. Thank you so much, Julie. This was fun. You've been listening to our podcast takeover series at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, or find us on SiriusXM's Insight Channel. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and me. Audio engineering by Corby Anderson and SiriusXM. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.